Let's pray together. God, continue to pour out your spirit among us so we can understand your word, so that we can continually be changed and living in obedience to you and to your word through the power of Jesus Christ. Amen. So maybe you've heard of Lake Wobegon. It's a fictional town where all the women are strong, are the, all the men are good-looking, and all the children are above average. I, I love this quote. Um, I used to listen to Garrison Keillor a lot, telling stories about Lake Wobegon. And at one point, I even wanted a doormat that had this quote on it because I am pretty strong and my husband's pretty good looking and I do think that our children are above average. And you know, maybe we all want to think our children are above average or that we are also above average, at least in something, right? We all desire to be good or skillful or talented at something. We all have our expertise. Sometimes we all want to be wise too. We want to be above average in wisdom, and I think that kind of might be what our passage for today is about. So today we continue our study in the book of James, and we're reading this together to learn what the Spirit has to say to the church through this word. And we pick, off, we pick up where Pastor Lars left off last week. We've already heard James' discussion about faith and deeds, Deeds such as how we act and speak and how we treat the poor. In chapter 3, James is specifically addressing the teachers, admonishing them to be careful how they speak. And then we move into our passage for today, and we hear an exploration of what wisdom from above looks like and also what it does not look like. We read this passage in context together because the text today cannot mean what it didn't mean then when James was writing to the church. And so it seems that James is saying, I'm, I'm summarizing the first part of this passage here, enough of that. You don't convince me of your wisdom by talking about it. You will convince me through your demonstration of character, through the kind of person that you are, through what you do, not through what you have to say. And James admonishes these teachers against their bitter envy and selfish ambition. I think these teachers might be considering themselves above average. Now, the Greek word for selfish ambition refers to this narrow partisan zeal of factional, greedy politicians. I'm sure we don't know anything about this today. Um, these people are, are priding themselves on their wisdom and understanding and are displaying a jealous and bitter partisanship that is the opposite, James points out, of the humility produced by true wisdom. There is this sense of self-made importance, of self-glorifying, a sense that one is above average. This is the selfish ambition James is talking about. I think we do recognize selfish ambition in our own culture, especially in regards to our attitude toward fame. We focus more on fame in our culture than on wisdom, I'd say. In David Brooks' 2015 book, The Road to Character, which I do recommend, 
Um, he reports that in a 1976 survey that asked people about their life goals, there were 16 life goals, fame was number 15, almost at the bottom. But by, 20, by 2007, 51% of young people reported that being famous was one of their top goals, to be above average. But fame in our culture doesn't really have to do with being good or kind or wise or heroic or charitable. It has to do often with fame for the sake of fame, fame for the sake of notoriety. But we are not to consider people wise because they're popular or famous. It's really easy for us to confuse the two, but that's something we need to hear a lot. We are not to consider people wise because they're popular or famous. Wisdom, James teaches, comes from above, and wisdom doesn't look like that. The stuff these teachers are saying, James says, that's not even real wisdom. He uses this word sarcastically in verse 15. In some translations, if you're following along with your Bible, it might be in quotes, right? Wisdom. But James names this wisdom for what it is. This wisdom is earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. Another translation says that it is godless, it is subhuman, and it is devilish. And then James continues, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. And this is what happens when people's motivation is their own zeal. And the word zeal is related to the word envy there. This word is actually a neutral word. It's not good or bad. Um, there's a tradition, in fact, of zealous acts in scripture. God is described as jealous sometimes. That's the same for zealous. And God's zeal and jealousy gets stuff done. But zeal is kind of like electricity. It can be plugged into something good and do something good, or it can be plugged into something evil and do something evil. And when zeal is plugged into selfish ambition, it leads to disorder and evil deeds, or every evil and foul practice. Now, Order and disorder are huge themes in the Hebrew Bible. And we can remember that to James' listeners, the Bible that they knew was the Hebrew Scriptures. And to these minds who have been saturated in these narratives and these poems of the Hebrew Scriptures, one of the primary activities of God is creating order from either disorder or non-order. And we still affirm this today when we affirm God as creator. We're affirming that God continues to give shape and order and purpose to the whole cosmos, including people and society. And so when this zealous, selfish ambition exists, what it leads to is this sort of unraveling of creation, this undoing, this anti-creation, in turn leading to an anti-good and foul practices within the community. Then James continues describing the wisdom from above in verses 17 and 18. And we're going to actually skip that part for now because if you look at the passage that Jane read earlier, this passage itself is kind of like a sandwich. It's not really a sandwich you'd want to eat because the top piece of bread is moldy and the um, bottom piece of bread, as we'll look at now, is also moldy. So we're going to skip the inside of the sandwich and continue in chapter 4. So James continues this, this diatribe and he asks, what causes fights and quarrels among you? The language there is really strong. 
It's the same as wars and battles. So it's aggressive and physically violent. Now, we don't know, and biblical scholars disagree about this, if there was actually physical altercation going on uh, between people in the church, or if the, the anger and antagonism is so bad, James is using hyperbole to describe it. But anyway, these were arguments or physical altercations. We don't know, but we do know that the temperature within this church was very hot. And all it was going to take was one match, and everything was going to burn down. And James is saying, whoa, whoa, you're not asking for wisdom. You covet out of your selfish desires. You don't get what you want, and you battle. And then James continues, you do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. What's James talking about here? It seems kind of like maybe he changed the subject. Is he talking about prayer? Sometimes this is how people read it. But when we read it in context, we see that James hasn't changed subjects at all. He's still talking about wisdom. He's referencing himself all the way back at, at chapter 1-5, where James writes, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. So this requirement that we ask God for wisdom is James' recognition that true wisdom has one source, God. And, and this, too, is one of the primary themes in the Bible. This theme begins in Genesis, when Adam and Eve willfully eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that they can become their own source of wisdom. And this is a primary problem for all humanity since then. We think we're the source of wisdom. We think we can go out and gather all the facts and be wise, but that is not true. True wisdom, James says, comes from God. The author of the Proverbs in chapter 9 writes, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And the good news here is that we don't have to go around wondering whether something is real wisdom or false wisdom, because this is the middle of the sandwich. James gives us the tools to, be re to recognize what true wisdom from above, what true wisdom from God looks like. So let's go back to this middle section, verses 17 and 18. James writes, The wisdom that comes from above is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. It's kind of hard to tell in English, but this is a beautiful passage in Greek. It's really a little poem that's inserted between these two sections that are a little scary and that describe bad behavior and violence. And in this little hymn to wisdom, James gives us the tools to recognize what wisdom from above is. Your Bible might say heavenly wisdom. It's the same thing. And so here's the list. This is the tool we have for recognizing wisdom from above. First, this wisdom is pure. Now, this has to do with moral and spiritual integrity, with righteousness. It is important for us to recognize that this word is prioritized. First, it is pure. So it goes above the rest of the list. And the rest of the list, I'd say, is sort of in a, a, a line together underneath it. So wisdom from above is, first of all, pure. And then the list continues. It is 
peaceful or humane and humane and yielding to persuasion, or up there I have peace-loving, considerate, submissive, willing to change for others. I don't really think submissive is a very popular word today, um, but it is necessary for being part of the community of the people of God. Being submissive is the opposite of being disobedient. Wisdom from God is able to be peace-loving because it is also considerate and submissive. The person who is submissive is one who is actually easily persuaded. Now, not in the sense of being a doormat or letting people walk all over him or her, but in a willing deference to others when unalterable theological or moral principles are not involved. So when it's not an issue of purity, of righteousness, submit. That's what James is saying. This is something I have had to learn the hard way. A few years ago, I was working at another covenant church, and my primary responsibility was planning worship. Now, some of you who I, I'm friends with and who know me well know that worship theology and practice is like my favorite thing about being a pastor. It's one of my favorite things to study and read about, and I love to go to churches all around the world and observe how they worship, and I love to read about how Christians for 2,000 years have worshiped, and I think we have a lot to learn from all those things. So when I had this job, I was super excited to use all my theological tools um, to, and to utilize our great covenant book of worship and, so, and to include all the parts of worship that have historically been important to the church, but it didn't work, at least not every week. Sometimes the music was too hard or sometimes the words were confusing. And a colleague and I, who was also working in, in the worship part of the church, actually had quite a number of disagreements between my theological idealization and her practical perspective of what should happen. Um, but then I started reading Richard Foster's classic book, A Celebration of Discipline. And I recognized that I, I wasn't 100% wrong, but I really had a lot to learn here. Foster talks about how submission is the ability to lay down the terrible burden of always needing to get our own way. And I think this is a wonderful invitation for us. We can also often think of submission as hard work, but he's saying actually submission is relinquishment. Submission is freedom. And as I pondered this, I was right. This was pure, right, from the perspective and the definition of James. But I wasn't peacemaking. I was wise, but I wasn't considerate. I had great historical and theological and biblical rationale for what I was choosing, but I wasn't submissive to my colleague. And this was a huge lesson for me, that wisdom is recognized externally by virtues practiced in a community. Wisdom is not individual. Wisdom is communal. Not long after this happened, I began the practice of regularly praying for wisdom as James instructs in chapter one. I still pray for wisdom, I'm by no means there yet. But I've recognized through these few years that as I pray for this wisdom, it's not simply something that God is going to pour into my own head by myself. This wisdom is received through the body of Christ, through Christ present with us now, and through the body of Christ that has gone before us. And this is really important, as the book of James is a text about community relationships and how communal virtues demonstrate corporate wisdom. This is the only word on the list I'm really going to dig into, so we'll continue the list together. 
So the wisdom that comes from above is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate and submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Wisdom from above is merciful. We can connect this to James' words about caring for the poor and the sick later on in the book. James is reconnecting with his words here, with the focus on not showing favoritism by being impartial. And sincere has to do with not being hypocritical. And then James sort of leans into a summary of this passage. If you are peacemakers, sowing in peace, you'll reap a harvest of righteousness. Wisdom leads to righteousness. If you are truly wise, and wisdom comes from God, it will show. James is going right back to verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done from the humility that comes from wisdom. When we read passages like what we have just looked at together uh, today, I think that there are two things that are a bit in tension with one another, that need to be happening in our own hearts and minds. And the first is, is that God uses scripture to convict us. And I hope as you have heard this and looked at this passage, that you are convicted. I have been convicted this week as I read this passage. There's a lot of opportunity for growth for all of us, and this is part of the Christian life as we lean into the work of the Spirit in our lives to help us be people who live in obedience to God. That's one reason we read it. But we also read scripture so that it gives us the tools to recognize God already at work in our midst, to affirm the presence of God among us here and now. And, and when I preach, I love to find stories that illustrate how God is active today in our world and ideally in our community in the same way God is act, was active during the time the scripture text was written. Sometimes I look at testimonies on Christianity Today or I talk to friends and hear stories, but this time I didn't have to go far at all. I went as far as Norm's desk in the office and um, there I found a piece of paper. It's a story that comes in the form of minutes from our special congregational meeting on May 20th. It's a story that is told briefly and simply in quotations. Now for those of you who might be visitors or who've been uh, traveling a lot recently, this is the backstory of this meeting. Um, we had a meeting to decide if our congregation should purchase a second parsonage. We've invited and he's accepted and called uh, Simon Guevara and his family to join us as our full-time associate pastor. He'll be starting in August. And so there was a, a motion that was put forward about if we should purchase a second parsonage for Simon and then future pastors and their family to live. And we had a meeting about this. And just so you know, I wasn't really involved in any of these conversations. I listened to some people express their opinions, but I wasn't even at this congregational meeting. I was traveling with my good-looking husband. Um, <laughs> so, but as I read this, standing next to Norm's desk, I thought, wow, these comments are so indicative of this wisdom that comes from above. We cannot read our Bible and decide if we should or shouldn't purchase a second parsonage. Many decisions in life are not necessarily decisions that there are clear instructions about in Scripture. Scripture gives clear instructions for many decisions regarding morality and instruction for a theological belief in God as a Christian. But there are many times in life where it's kind of a gray area. There's no passage that says, ye shalt purchase a second parsonage. 
So we have to lean into the wisdom that comes from God. And as I read these quotes, I heard comments that were peace-loving, considerate, submissive, merciful, impartial, and sincere for many of you. There was a recommendation that if, if everybody wasn't here, perhaps we should do a straw poll to help counsel continue in this conversation. Uh, there was a recommendation that we should be careful in housing costs and, and try to spend more in the lower end of the spectrum. Very wise. Not everyone had the same preference. Some members preferred for us to look for a parsonage further out to expand our reach, maybe so the pastor's children could go to a different school district. But other parishioners had pretty strong preferences for the, the parsonage to be in this Hinsdale school district. So not everyone agreed. But the final comment was, the price is high, but let's trust God's leading on this. And it passed, the motion passed. A house was found in Western Springs, and it was closed on this week. And this is the house where Simon and his family and God willing future pastors and their family will, will live. Peacemakers, which this meeting completely demonstrated, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. And so I say today in response to this that may God bless our purchase of a second personage. May God bless our submission to one another, when people submitted their preferences to one another for the sake of the wisdom God was pouring out to us all. May God bless Simon's ministry among us and may the kingdom of God be evident in our midst. May we also be able to, as Dexter Means pointed out, in the future spend less money on ourselves in the future so that we can be merciful and care for the poor and spread the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the world. May we all be able to shelve our preferences and gather together, willing to submit to one another. Amen. In response, I invite us to think a bit more about this passage from James, this middle passage, the good part in the middle of the moldy sandwich. This is a hymn about wisdom. And what you don't see in our English translations is that this has an internal rhyme. It was written almost as if James wants us to remember these words, right? Words that, things that rhyme, they're, they're more easy for us to remember. We can think of advertising jingles or nursery rhymes or Shakespeare. The words at the beginning of the list start with the same sound and have the same number of syllables. And at the end, they change the sound, but it's still the same number of syllables. And I think what this text is doing is inviting us to put it in our hearts, to memorize it. It's pretty simple to memorize something that rhymes. It's a little bit harder to memorize something that doesn't. But this week, I invite you to consider trying to memorize this. Uh, Norm created some cards that Yogi's gonna pass out right now um, to help you do that. And I know sometimes for some of us, scripture memory can be discouraging, but I wanna give you some, some hints that might make it easier for you if this is a new practice for you. And we don't memorize scripture so God will love us more. We memorize scripture so we'll love God more. Um, if you use a treadmill or an exercise machine, when you move, you memorize better. So that's one way to do it. Uh, memorizing while you wash the dishes, also very helpful. I have a friend who swears by memorizing while she drives. I'm not recommending that, but it might work for some people. If you struggle with anxiety or anxious thoughts that go around and around in your head, scripture memory can be one of the ways that God can speak to you and encourage your heart. 
So this will help you. This is a beautiful poem that will help us to remember what God's wisdom looks like, God's wisdom from above. And may God bless us with wisdom so that we will be peacemakers with a harvest of righteousness. Let's pray. Jesus, give us wisdom. Give us wisdom as a group, not as individuals. Give us wisdom so that the good news of what you have done and continue to do will be poured out of our doors, will shine out of our windows, of our homes, and our church building, and our cars, and our lives. Bless us with this. We trust this to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.